$22 million worth of gold, banknotes, other valuables just vanishing. It's an astonishing story that happened at Toronto's Pearson International Airport, one that I've kind of had a you know, as close as you can get to a front row seat for it. Hi, my name's Brian Lilly, a host of Full Comment Podcast, and today we're going to be talking about heists because there's something that just, something about a heist that just fascinates us all. Maybe it's taking us back to our, our youth when we've read about Robin Hood, stealing from the rich to give to the poor. Maybe it's just fascination with how organized crime works, but we're drawn to these stories, and that's something that our next guest knows an awful lot about. But before I get to him, I do want to remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast on whatever app or device you're listening to, and please do hit subscribe, uh, leave a comment, hit a like, make sure that you let people know about it. Um, Spreading the word helps us get these stories out to a wider audience. Our next guest is Scott Andrew Selby, and he is someone who has studied heists, written about them. He is co-author of the book Flawless, Inside the Largest Diamond Heist in History, and he joins us today from Southern California. Scott, thanks for the time. Thank you, Brian. Uh, So you wrote about a, a diamond heist that took place about 20 years ago. What was it that drew you to that story? I want to talk about Pearson and what you know about that and, and different gold heists in a minute. But what drew you to this this diamond heist in, was it Holland? It was in Antwerp, Belgium. Um, okay. And what drew me is just the scale of it, both in terms of the security that had to be subverted and the amount of loot itself. So the first thing that hits you is sort of the headline. It's hundreds of millions of dollars worth of uh, primarily diamonds that were stolen. And the thing that really fascinated me, though, was all the layers of security. You mentioned the big question is, why do we like heists? It's sort of the meta question of the uh, hour. And at least for me, I found it to be a sort of um, maybe even four-dimensional chess if you take in time as an element, where on the one hand, you see something and it looks impenetrable. You're there as a tourist in a secure diamond area and it's unimaginable. It's the equivalent of Fort Knox. But people who are experts, the, the smartest people in this field spend, you know, they spent over two years figuring out how to get away with this. Two years to plan a heist. Did they get away with it in the end? Yes and no. Um, in the immediate aftermath, the Monday morning, the security guard comes down and the vault's been ransacked. Um, there's there's enough like diamonds and jewels on the floor, like uh, the Alibaba's cave for, you know, it's millions of dollars. It's enough take that any robber would be happy with. And that was left behind. So in that moment, they got away with it and the loot's still gone. Um, but some of them did get caught. Some, but not all. And that's the big question for the Pearson robbery that kind of sparked our interest in this and and, and brought me to, to speaking with you today is airports are very secure. We've all been through airports in the last uh, couple decades since 9-11. The, the level of security that you go through as a passenger. Now we're talking about getting a, a, a it's been described as a, a standard airport cargo container uh, by the police. And when the police uh, officer who said that was asked, well, what does that look like? I don't, I, I don't deal in airport containers. They said, oh, it's about five feet by five feet square. 
that's a pretty big box to just smuggle out. Um, so, you know, what we know in general is that it's gold and banknotes, perhaps other valuables as well, that it was brought into the country by Air Canada. Brinks was supposed to handle the the ground transportation once it landed. It did land. It went to a cargo facility. And somewhere between go, going into that cargo facility and arriving at TD Bank, it just disappeared. How much does that grab you? As someone that has studied this, and you, you've studied the 1952 gold heist at Pearson, we'll talk about in a minute. How much does that mystery just strike you as own? Okay, there's something interesting here. I mean, you know this as a journalist. It's an amazing story. Um, I mean, this is straight out of something you'd see on Netflix. Um, there's a wonderful and fascinating uh, aspect of it, which is is this story of how did this happen? It's a magic trick writ large. There's gold. It's in this secure area, an area intended for cargo. So that security would look a little different than what you go through as a passenger post 9-11. And it's disappeared. So clearly these thieves, just like any thieves at this level of expertise, they saw something a little different than the rest of us. They saw some weaknesses to exploit and they managed to pull a magic trick. And the strangest thing about this trick, really, in my opinion, is how basically the same thing happened in 52 and that was never solved. And it was the same thing where Brinks came in with the you know, a bunch of gold and the gold disappeared. You and I spoke a little while ago for one of my pieces that ran in print in, in the Toronto sun. And I had been hearing from everyone. Well, it's obviously got to be an inside job. This is an inside job. Somebody was on the inside. You said, no, don't be so sure. You're not ruling it out, but you told me not to be so sure. Why? I think it's very dangerous to make assumptions at this level, at this um, juncture in time. And I think it's important to kind of look at different possibilities. It could be a hybrid where there's some insider gave a little bit of information like happened in the Lufthansa heist, the famous Goodfellas heist, where there was an insider who had a gambling debt, who uh, informed organized crime. But it's just hard to say. In my case, for the Antwerp heist, I wrote about it. They were outsiders. I mean, they became sort of semi-insiders by renting an office in their Target building. But ultimately, they I would consider them to be outsiders. And here it's possible. People could take the time to analyze the security and see what they could see and figure this out. So I'll put it this way. If it turns out that it's insiders, I won't be surprised. If it turns out that it's outsiders who just did a very good job at surveilling the place and thinking about the place. I won't be surprised either. The police used the odd phrasing that this high value cargo was, and I quote, removed by illegal means. Now, when you and I are talking about these sorts of things, we say something stolen. And in my experience, police are very careful and precise with their language. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I'm wondering, um, did the Brinks truck that was supposed to take this perhaps show up, load a bunch of containers of valuables into the truck, leave, and then one of them disappeared? I mean, that, that's possibly what happened, isn't it? 
There's a lot of possibilities we need to entertain, and that's certainly one of them. In terms of the language, a few things come to mind. One, um, police generally use the passive tense, and that may be part of it. They're, I'm a lawyer in America, but obviously our legal system is quite different than the Canadian one, so that may reflect elements of the crime that they need to ascertain. There may be different ways that a crime is understood if it's somebody that had control of it but misappropriated it. Um, it could be nothing. I, I don't know. The point is at this juncture, there's not that information known to us that the public have distributed, sorry, that the police have distributed. So I could see we're sort of trying to, maybe it's grasping at straws to try to see something. Maybe that's um, maybe that's a real key to understanding this. It's It's really hard to tell at this point. It's been just over a month since the heist happened, um, about a month since we found out that it happened. And I, you know, I'm quite sure that if it hadn't been broken by myself or somebody else in the media, if I didn't do it, somebody else would have eventually heard. But if it hadn't broken in the media, I think that the police would have stayed very quiet about this. And I'm sure that the companies involved didn't want the embarrassment of it. I'm not sure we can quantify this, but do you get a sense that these things happen more frequently than we know, and we just don't hear about it because the people involved don't want word getting out? I think you might be onto something there. It also depends how far things get. So, for instance, when writing about these stories, um, it's clear that you have great sources locally in the police and otherwise to be able to break this story. But to really get the details, a lot of times it takes actual litigation, right? So that could be criminal or civil. So I think for these things, if it's at a certain level, if it's big enough, I think that it's hard to hide because there could be litigation over insurance coverage. Generally, insurance companies you know, don't want to pay out or there's <laughs> um, arguments about how much they should pay, uh, also liability for, say, Brinks, maybe the airport security. And then if anybody gets caught, all of a sudden, these criminal procedures in countries like Canada and the U.S., these things are, are public. I mean, generally, you know, the only exceptions being national security type stuff. But yeah, just smaller things. Um, maybe they make deals and make things go away. It's definitely very embarrassing. But the thing is, is it's beyond embarrassing. The business of these entities is security. That's what they're selling, right? So the mm -hmm. airport as a whole, they need people to feel safe. They need passengers to feel safe post 9-11. And that's important. That's an important part of their job, right? But they also need all the people, all the businesses. As much money as this is, it's a very small fraction of how much by value passes through the cargo area of your local airport, right? So yeah. They need to make sure that everybody feels safe. And, you know, that's the business Brinks is in. And I, I will want to say to defend Brinks, the reason that they come up in these sort of heists, including the 1952 one, is they're the biggest players or one of the biggest players in security. So that's no uh, slight on them that, that their name is being mentioned in all these things. Uh, obviously, it varies by each particular event. But, uh, yeah, there could be ones we don't know about. And a lot of these things, it just takes time to unfold. There's been a lot of speculation on whether the people behind this particular heist will, will ever get caught. In the diamond heist that you wrote about in Flawless, 
you said some of them got caught, some didn't. How long did it take? How long were people out on the lam with all this loot? I mean, I'm assuming they sold off some of the diamonds and were able to live a nice lifestyle for a bit at least. Uh, were they on the lam for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, years? What was the story there? I mean, it's a, it's a really wild story. Uh, it's the kind of thing that if you don't delve into all the details, like I did for this research, you start coming up with conspiracy theories. I heard all sorts of stuff. Um, as they say, the devil's in the details when you really dig into it. And um, you just have to kind of understand the larger context. But the amazing thing is, is that the heist took place over a weekend, Valentine's Day weekend, 2003. There was a lot of stuff happening there. There was a, um, a huge tennis tournament um, involving superstars. And that Monday morning, the heist is discovered, right? They come down the vault. Uh, at that point, they have absolutely... So, so not, even, not even an alarm going off over the weekend? Nothing. It's, you, you show up Monday morning, nothing. You know, it happens over Saturday night into Sunday morning. Nobody knows they've been robbed. And that gives the thieves at that point, they quickly kind of sort. They go to their safe house. It's an apartment I've been in. And they um, sort through what they have. They're basically trying to separate the trash from the valuables, right? As they quickly gone through and, and gathered this stuff. And that's where they made the first mistake, which I'll get back to. So that Monday morning, um, they're already, you know, gone or in the process of leaving. There's different people. And there's also a, um, you could track all the different entities, you know, one or more people going through this sort of a network of burner phones of SIM cards, right? Because they're calling each other. And um, so you could see them heading out and eventually they were able to trace these SIM cards to the nor north of Italy. So that gives you, you know, you got a sense of who you might be dealing with generally. But what happened is it's just wild is so this Monday morning, they discover the heist. It hits the news. Um, it's just everything goes crazy. And there's this guy, August Van Camp. He basically patrols this parcel of land that has some trees, some nature. I've walked around it. It's right off the highway. And the thing that helped make sense of this to me is it's basically the last wooded area. If you're traveling from Antwerp to the next major airport, which would be in Brussels, right? So um, as they're going through there, the thieves had turned off and just tossed this, this trash into the woods. And so that's their first mistake, right? Because they probably... The, the, the trash being some of the, some of the goods that they'd stolen that they didn't want. Correct. As well as paperwork that would be associated. You're emptying these... It's a safe deposit job. So there's all kinds of things you're, you're grabbing together, right? And... The thing that happens is, is this guy, August Van Camp, he notices this trash and he's the kind of guy who just bothers the local police whenever people are dumping. Right. And in, in northern Italy, that's a much bigger issue with people just dumping stuff in Belgium. Not so much. But in Belgium, you can't just um, go to your local McDonald's and toss it there. They lock down their trash. They have CCTV. So this seems like a good place to just dump stuff. And if it weren't for August Van Camp, they would have gotten away with it. So he goes through his trash and he notices all this stuff from the Diamond District, right? And calls into the police. The police move really fast. And here's the next big break, which is that this trash commingles two things. One, it has trash from the heist. But two, it has household trash from the safe house. Um, these things are commingled. 
And that enables the police with a lot of hard work. It's, it's harder work than you might think to piece this stuff together, to take torn receipts, put them together, figure out what's going on. But they're able to put it all in place by Friday. So when the person who'd rented an office in there, Leonardo Norta Bartolo, shows up at the office building, he wants to badge into their electronic system. So he's not shown as the only person who never came back after the heist. When he pops up, he has no idea, but the police are already on to him. And that starts the process of them then um, being able to arrest and convict for the thieves. But there obviously are more people involved. Um, who, who were just never caught. Correct. And the I've spent some time with the, the police in Turin, and they're definitely, they have some ideas and some thoughts, and they definitely know they're part of a loose association of thieves known as the School of Turin. So these are high-end thieves who come together for a particular job. And they definitely would need a, a fence, a way to get these diamonds back into a legitimate stream of commerce and you know other things along those lines. It's fascinating that it was a bag of trash thrown off the side of the road that that tipped off the police and got them. And I'm wondering what, if anything, it'll be for, for this heist. I mean, if they even can. Um, you know, that remains to be seen. You said they, they needed, in the diamond heist, they needed to find a way to get that back into the legitimate market. And that might be easier for diamonds than gold. Gold, you've got all these bars. You've got to be able to melt them down to get rid of the, the serial numbers, perhaps, or sell them to somebody who doesn't care yes. that they've got stamps and serial numbers on them. Um, that That's harder to do than than just finding someone who, for the right fee, will recut diamonds so that you can't tell they've ever been out there. Well, the thing with diamonds is there's a lot of different ones there, but the majority, maybe even the vast majority of these stolen diamonds, it just is the first person that brings it back into the legitimate stream of commerce that knows that something's wrong and they're going to take a steep discount, right? And diamonds can move very quickly in the diamond district or anywhere in the world, really. They could just change hands, you know. There are some diamonds that you would have to do work on and you would need a a corrupt polisher to polish something off, or there are a few that'd be really difficult to move. So if you have a very large, um, fancy, you know, colorful diamond, um, that's hard. There's diamonds, for instance, diamonds from Canada. Canada does this amazing job with marketing, right? Because there are concerns um, about the environment, about human rights, about blood diamonds, all these sort of things. Mm-hmm. So if you get a diamond mined in Canada, they could put a little thing on the side of it with maybe a maple leaf, maybe a polar bear, as well as a serial number. So that's the sort of thing that you might have to remove. But you're right. The vast majority of it, the kind of stuff you're just going to see in your local strip mall jewelry store or, you know, an upper middle class or middle class engagement ring, um, that's easy to move. But yet gold is going to be really difficult because it is going to have these serial numbers on it. And things have changed. Like there was a huge gold heist in England, very famous, uh, the Branks Matt heist, where they were easily able to just sort of go and transform this gold into new bars. But obviously now there'd be a million questions so I think unless you had a corrupt entity um, willing to, to do that for you in Canada, I would think the smart move by far would be to move it out of the country to somewhere where people don't care or they have that capability to transform it. Or if you don't know how to do that, to just um, you know hide it until you do and 
The good thing about stealing gold is gold basically keeps up with inflation. So it's not like a bank job where you bury the banknotes for 20 years and, you know, inflation's eaten away at that. So it just sort of depends. But um, I would imagine, as we talked about um, previously, you and I, that it's left the country. All right. We'll talk about that when we come back from this quick break. So you case the joint at Pearson for a while. You sit with the Brinks truck drivers behind the diner across the street from the cargo area. You figure out patterns. You pull off the heist. But what do you do with the gold after that? That has to be one of the big questions after this $22 million worth of gold and banknotes and other valuables was was taken from Pearson Airport. Um, Scott, I you know I've talked to people who said uh, if there's banknotes and they're euros, it should be fairly easy for the the thieves to dispose of that over time, um, small amounts, trading it in, because we can't trace foreign banknotes. We just the police don't have the capability to do that. But getting gold out of the country, it's not like you can just turn around and put it on another airplane all that easily. Uh, unless you're smuggling it out in small amounts, getting that big cargo thing on there, it, there's going to be paperwork. You, you're going to have to explain what it is. You're going to have to um, vouch for it. So all, all of these things would be a, a record. But driving it to a port, like say Montreal, and greasing the local organized crime group that runs the port, that should be fairly easy, shouldn't it? That depends on who our thieves are, right? So if these are people with uh, deep connections to organized crime, then 100%, right? They're just going to tap into existing networks that would be used in Canada for illegal drugs primarily, right? Those are similar sizes, um, similar high values, right? And there are other parts of the world where there are smuggling things smuggling methods already in place for gold, right? Because for instance, somewhere like India, if I remember correctly, is like 18%. There's these huge taxes. So it's the sort of thing where people smuggle for those reasons. But again, this depends on who our thieves are, right? If these just are people, if it's a crime of opportunity where people saw this and just moved in on it, they may not know what to do with it. They may have been so focused on getting the gold, they may not know. There also could be small time thieves that are in over their heads. You know, maybe this is more than they expected. That's happened. And then they would probably just go to whoever the local fence is. But it's very different bringing in 22 million in gold to the guy that you normally sell stolen TVs to. Right. So there could be (laughs) all sorts of issues. And if it were me, if I didn't have very strong ties with local organized crime, Honestly, I would just stay away from them because I would be much more afraid of them than the police, right? Because these are the sort of people who might just, you know, take care of you and just keep the $22 million for themselves, which has an added benefit, not just of uh, not giving you a cut, but also that cuts the connection, right? So even if you figure out who did the robbery, you're not going to connect it to whoever, you know, moved it on. So again, I just... I'm not really sure. There's a lot of factors at play. And if it were me, where's a crime of opportunity, as I said, I would bury it in my backyard, Tony Soprano style, and just wait until I had a plan. Oh, man. I, I, I can't imagine. I, I mean, I can imagine that th- there is the possibility that this is a, a crime of opportunity where somebody stumbled upon it, took advantage of the situation. But I can't imagine being that person. And 
and and then sitting there not knowing what to do with that much gold? I mean, I would be afraid. And, um, you know, there'd be people I'd be much more afraid of than the Canadian police. We've, um, you know, whether it's movies, Thomas Crown Affair, Great Train Robbery, um, Goodfellas, uh, things of this nature have been portrayed. And oftentimes the people are caught. Other times there's not. I, I believe it was um, 1970s. Um, Montreal Art Gallery robbed of of art by people who rappelled in from the roof and then walked out the front door, never to be seen again. Uh, how often do people get away with these big heists? Is it uh, more often than not? You've looked at the the European networks, like the uh, the School of Turin or the Pink Panthers. I mean, do, if they always get caught, you know, they wouldn't go through with it. I guess. Well, there's a risk, right? So there's a few things at play. Uh, you know, the ability to do this. These are these sort of art heists. Honestly, a lot of them, it doesn't take a lot of ability. But a $22 million gold heist, that takes a lot of ability, right? Or hundreds of millions of dollars in diamonds. But there's also a risk element, right? So even if you and I were to sit down and game plan out how to pull off one of these heists, and we were okay with the morals of it all, maybe rationalize it with they have insurance coverage or something like that, uh, which isn't always the case. Uh, there's a risk, you know, and personally, I'm not willing to take the risk of spending, I don't know, five, 10 years in prison. But for a lot of people, that would be worth it, you know, it'd very much be worth it. And, you know, they would try to do this. I did hear the case of um, one person who uh, went to jail um just to be able to get out and and take their their loot that they'd hidden because they couldn't be uh for what I forget the the entire backstory they couldn't be charged with the actual robbery so it was a short jail sentence and they thought yeah two years I can sweat that and then I know where the millions are at the end so um I I would have trouble with the morals of it above and beyond the jail time I mean I'm I'm the same but there's a lot of people that wouldn't. I mean, look at how many people are willing to, you know, smash somebody's window and steal their, you know, stereo or their, their papers or whatever. I mean, there's, there's people that would do it. Legal concept that you're referring to is known as double jeopardy, right? If you've already been um, tried for a crime, you can't be tried for it again. But that can get a bit complicated, right? Because, um, for instance, you can't be try it again. Whether you're found not guilty or guilty doesn't matter, right? But you can't be tried again for the actual heist. But there's going to be other things these days, you know, the way you're moving the money, what you're doing with it. Uh, there could be things that they could do. And there also might be civil things where the government's able to take the, the loot away from you. But um, so, yeah, personally, I wouldn't just do two years just to get rid of that uh, double jeopardy aspect. You've uh, you mentioned earlier the school of Turin, and it fascinates me that there are these groups that that quite frankly sound like Ocean's Eleven, um, and they exist. There's School of Turin. There's Pink Panthers. I think they're based out of France. Um, do these groups exist in North America as well, or the high end uh, oh, yeah. syndicates that will spend years? planning a, a high-end robbery? Do they just exist in Europe? No, and, and the Pink Panthers, they'll travel anywhere in the world. Uh, they came out of the 
just brutal dissolution of Yugoslavia right after the fall of the Soviet Union. So their MO is the opposite of the School of Turin. The School of Turin are professionals who have legitimate businesses in the field that enable them to learn. So a locksmith business, an alarms business where they never rob uh, their customers. And they'll travel around Europe and do a job. And their MO is you show up Monday morning and discover you've been robbed, right? The Pink Panthers are the opposite. It's a military-like approach where they show up with overwhelming force and they take what they need and they get away. It's more like a... Yeah, so the the school of Turin is more Ocean's Eleven. It's a magic trick, whereas the Pink Panthers are more like a Mission Impossible, some sort of Hollywood thing. They've literally had things where they've gotten away in speedboats, you know, just crazy stuff. But the thing you need to look at with this stuff in the end, right, is if you have something that's incredibly valuable, just incredibly valuable, right, there's going to be people that will want to take it. And on each level, it's very much like, um, do you remember, I think it was Mad Magazine that had Spy versus Spy, where these these two yep. sort of characters, right? So there's two sort of characters. It's sort of like in the Cold War, there's the U.S. and the Soviet Union. So at the very high level, you know, if you're protecting hundreds of millions of diamonds, for example, they're not worried about your listeners. Maybe one of your listeners would have that skill set. I don't know. Um, maybe somebody tuned in just for this subject. <laughs> but the idea is they need the best, the best, the best in the world will look at it because if you have that skill set, even if you invest two years, you rent a safe house, you're doing all this stuff, the return on your investment is, is incredible, right? So that is an issue. It's, uh, two years. The Antwerp Diamond Heist was uh, at least two years in the making. Um, and there are other groups. I mean, these the groups I mentioned are well-known at this point. I mean, we have a thing in the U.S. now where there's there's a certain group that comes in, does some big um, sort of house burglary type jobs, and then leaves the country immediately. You know, so that sort of cuts off the connection. Um, and it can be like you theorized in a prior conversation that you and I had there could be organized crime that doesn't specialize in these sort of high-end heists, but maybe sees a local opportunity. And they, they deal with all kinds of different sort of crimes, but they already have the um, ability and willingness to take risks, to know how to move things, to do things. So, for instance, uh, in Dresden, Germany, just two days ago, people were, were sentenced for a very big uh, jewelry heist there out of a museum. And this was a local criminal group that handled all sorts of stuff. It was a crime family that had come to Berlin in the eighties and um, they knew how to do this kind of stuff and they were willing to do it. There are an increasing number of hotel heists you've told me about now, you know, just from breathing the air, we would all know about the Kim Kardashian jewel heist in Paris a few years ago. You couldn't escape that. It was in the headlines everywhere. Uh, $10 million worth of jewelry stolen out of a hotel safe. I I feel weird leaving my hotel, my my passport in those little hotel safes. I'm sure Kardashians had a nicer hotel and a better safe, but still it's, it's not high end security. Uh, Is that becoming a target for these, these syndicates or, or crime groups? It can be, it even could be locals. I mean, there definitely are going to be, you know, hotels I've heard about where, 
there's some sort of insider has some sort of master key and they're robbing tourists of, you know, relatively small takes, you know, for the, the tourists, it could be very, you know, losing a thousand euros could be a real big hit. Um, but in terms of people looking to target the bigger scores, I mean, this is definitely a soft target, right? Um, when we're talking about an airport cargo area that's equipped to handle millions of dollars worth of gold and brinks, this is a hard target. That's a really hard thing to do. But for instance, if you look at Cannes in France, where they have this big, you know, film festival that's either happening or just happened, and there's a lot of people going there, uh, and there's there's representatives of jewelry companies, there's celebrities who are borrowing this jewelry. Um, there's all sorts of money floating around. They're staying at hotels that are set up to protect a tourist. Uh, like when you've traveled, just your passport, some spare cash, right? And so that could be something worth targeting. And a really interesting thing now is also social media, right? So you see that uh, there's a certain celebrity. You see what they're wearing. You see where they're going. You see that they're you know out on the town and. And they're not doing a delay. Like maybe the ones that are really security conscious, they're waiting till you know, some time has passed. But a lot of these things are, are live, especially with video. So it's almost like having a big sign like, hey, I'm not in my hotel room. I've got emeralds around my neck. They'll be in the safe later on. A hundred percent. And obviously breaking into a hotel safe is, I mean, there's a lot of people that could do that. That's like one step up from being an expert pickpocket. There's I mean, the, the number of people with that skill set and willingness, uh, you know, dwarfs the the number of people that could pull off the sort of heist that we've been talking about so far today. I, I just realized um, that we didn't really get into the 1952 heist too much. And I know you've studied that. Many people don't know that the, the 1952 heist at what was then called Malton International Airport, now Pearson International, that that, that even happened. You know, because we, there was no movie about it that I know of. Uh, so Phil is in on that one. Um, my understanding is a bunch of gold showed up. Only some of it made it to its destination. That's true. And I will say in terms of movies and books, I mean, it really helps if it solves, right? I mean, if it's high profile enough, like the Gardner heist, a famous heist, at a museum, then sure, people are going to write about it. They'll speculate, you know, or D.B. Cooper when he, you know, stole money and jumped off a plane. I mean, in the Pacific Northwest, that's worth talking about, right? But even a big heist, it disappears from the news, right? So you're local, you're covering this amazing story by you, but eventually it'll peter out, you know, five, 10 years. It's not going to be a movie, but if you catch these people, right, and then you have a record of their criminal proceedings, that might be worth you know, a book, a, a movie. movie script. Yeah. Yeah. So the very thing, so it's very ironic because the very thing that makes the 1952 heist so amazing is also the thing that makes it something that people might not want to make a movie out of, which is that this gold just disappeared. You know, it was, and it's also, I love rooting these things in the history of, of the place and the time, and this is Canadian history. So basically what was happening to fill you in a little bit is um, it's basically it's a story of a magic trick in which half a ton of gold disappeared, right? While it was in secure transit. And so gold was pouring out of the mines in Northern Ontario and it was coming into smelters in Toronto 
and they turned it into industrial quality gold. So this isn't what's just being sold to normal people, right? It's um, 22 karat. And so basically what happened is uh, it was a Tuesday afternoon, September 24th, 1952. Once again, a Brinks armored car it pulls in to the same exact airport, different name, same airport. It has 10 reinforced boxes of industrial gold, right? Brinks is there just to do the handoff. They watch the handoff to the cargo people and then they leave, right? They've done their job. So the cargo workers, they measure it, make sure it mis- matches the manifest, sign off on them, give a receipt, and then they put it in a temporary storage area, right? A cargo storage area. And um, then there's a lot of confusion about exactly what happened. There was a cargo handler. Uh, I'll just use his initials. I assume he's dead by now, but you never know, right? I'll just say HH, young man at the time. And he was sort of responsible for getting on the plane. But there was a lot of moving parts. He left it unattended to help some people. Some other people were doing some other stuff. But everybody thought that it was on the plane, right? So the plane um, the plane is, is in air. It's uh, an airline that no longer exists uh, called TCA, Trans-Canadian Airlines, right? And it came in a bit late. There's a rush to unpack it. And, um, oh, sorry, this is in Montreal. And the cargo holders, it's their job to empty this out. And they see that the manifest lists 10 boxes. 10 boxes are put on. But there's only four boxes. So six boxes. And these are heavy. Uh, I did the math. It's uh, I think it's 848 pounds. Um, We're just gone. Each each box no, no, is no, 800 total. or total. total. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, that, total. That, that's a lot of weight. Yeah. That would have been the Hulk, but that's still a lot. Right. So, um, you know, and as we talked about before with sort of cover-ups, it's kind of like um, maybe you notice something was missing at work and you want to first, you know, make sure it's just totally gone before you call the police. So it's kind of like that. They're trying to look into this, sort this out, figure out what's going on. Eventually they bring in the police and it's just a dead end. The police look at the cargo loaders. They, you know, they follow them in life, you know, but this guy that I mentioned, he's not living large. He doesn't suddenly have, a, you know, a Ferrari. He doesn't suddenly have a, a lake house. Um, but these are things that people look at. So, you know, we talked about this, you and I, a little bit before, but that's going to be one thing with this heist. Maybe if they can't sort out the most recent airport heist, right, if they can't sort it out right away, they will be keeping an eye on these people, right? And people today, hopefully they're, well, hopefully for them, they're smart enough not to just suddenly buy a big house, you know, something like that. But they, you know, might have some vacation stuff. You know, um, one of my favorite things, I think it's Superman 2, is Richard Pryor's a computer hacker who steals a bunch of money. And the bosses at the company say, we'll never catch this guy. And he shows up at the company at work in a brand new car with brand new clothes, right? <laughs> So, um, yes, yeah, so, we'll so they'll be on the lookout for the, uh, the Richard Pryor Superman two I mean, telltale that, sign. That's always there. And you got to realize, I mean, people mess up, people talk, people get drunk. Um, things happen. Maybe their, their spouse knows and later they get a divorce. Somebody drops a dime on them. Uh, maybe somebody gets caught for something else. Uh, maybe there's a reward put out, um, you know, things things happen. And not so much with these monetary things, but especially with some of these big art heists that aren't really worth that much money or they're impossible to move. Um, maybe somebody later on turns in the loot. I mean, that's that's happened before. I looked at a... You mentioned a, 
a museum heist in your area before uh, a while back. And there were some similar heists. There were a lot of museum heists at the time. And um, in some of them, the people just turned in the works later. Uh, and ironically, it also turned out that some of these works weren't actually what anybody thought they were. They weren't actually, you know, a Rembrandt that's happened repeatedly <laughs> as well. Scott, thanks so much for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. And um, I'm sure people have their own favorite high story or things to watch. And uh, we'll continue to be fascinated by this strange side world of, of crime. Thank you so much for having me on, Brian. I really appreciate it. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. Remember, you can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. Listen on the app, use your Alexa-enabled devices, and you can help us out by giving us a, a rating, leaving a review, sharing this on social media, and telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Brian Lilly.